Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today we are talking about highly sensitive people, empaths and alcohol. And my guest is Nikki Eisenhower. She's an international life coach and a psychotherapist, a licensed professional counselor, a yoga and meditation teacher, and the host of the wildly popular podcast, Emotional Badass. Nikki is on a mission to help others heal from the wounds of their pain so they no longer have to live in the shadows of their past. She is committed to teaching others that being emotional is a sign of strength, not weakness. And through her work, Nikki helps highly sensitive people, survivors, empaths, healers, see that it is not only acceptable to feel, but that's how we will change the world. So Nikki, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And I'm excited that we share a network. I know I am too. We actually, if people are listening to this, I know a lot of you are listening to Jill Teets' podcast, Sober Powered, and that is how Nikki and I met. 
I am very grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to be part of the network. And it's always so humbling to hear that kind of introduction. I'm like, yeah, I have done all that stuff. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you have done all that stuff. And I mentioned before we jumped on that I've been listening to your podcast and also listening to interviews with you on other podcasts because I like to get really prepared. And I was so excited to talk to you about this because I know that so many women tend to drink to sort of turn down the noise on their emotions and this sort of stimulus around them and also feel things really deeply. And I think that by understanding more about what it means to be a highly sensitive person, what it means to be an empath, the challenges and the benefits of having that in their lives, it'll help them navigate the world without feeling that they need to turn to alcohol. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I am I am definitely a highly sensitive person and I didn't know that for a very long time. I'm an empath and and the difference really is just that a highly sensitive person can have a more highly tuned or fine-tuned nervous system. And then an empath is sort of like highly sensitive person next level. <laughs> it's we also sense what other people are feeling so that that can be more sensory like our sensory system of how different fabrics feel. We might have um, auditory sensitivity about sound. Some of us might be really, really sensitive to smell. Sort of our sensory system. I'm an emotional empath where I can feel what other people are feeling. There's different schools of thought on how that happens to us, why that happens. And, And I think it's a combination of both schools of thought. I think I was born this way. In large part, I, I just like we have differences in hair color and hair texture and the size of our bones. I mean, just all these different differences that we have naturally. I think very naturally we're going to have differences in some of us being born more deeply feeling, more highly tuned in that sensory system, in our nervous system. So when I started my work as a therapist, I had no idea that that's what I was. I had just felt weird most of my life and odd and had grown up hearing a lot of the things that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have grown up hearing over the years. It's like, oh, you're too sensitive. Why are you crying again? Why are you reading so deeply into that thing? Oh, you're so weird. And I just really thought I was weird and it was anxiety and it was just things that I had to figure out. Yeah, you get such negative reinforcement from having deep emotions and not going with the flow and not being easy to be around. And so you're taught to like push it down, but then that suppression is deeply uncomfortable, right? Totally uncomfortable. And and sort of the kicker for those of us that are born with high sensitivity, if you buy into that camp, is that trauma increases our sensitivity. And so I grew up in a very, very dysfunctional home. Uh, my, my mother, I believe, is a sociopath, and every sociopath is a narcissist. Uh, my biological father wound up abandoning me fully by age 10, but kind of started abandoning me at about six. And so I had years of deep, deep attachment wound and struggle. And then my mother married a pedophile. And that's part of my story. I grew up and I put him in prison. And so I also almost died when I was born. So when we look at that through the lens of sensitivity and nervous system, it means my little nervous system was just in a heightened response constantly. And the thing about our nervous systems is that that's what they're supposed to do. 
So when we have danger or when we have too much stress or struggle or even just chaos as children, we don't get enough nervous system regulation. We don't get enough peace and enough calm. And oftentimes when people hear my story, they go, well, you know, I wasn't molested or nobody beat me with bricks. I shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't have this much sensitivity or I shouldn't have this much anxiety. I don't have those big giant traumas that are so easy to point out. The more that I've gotten older and healed, I have so much more compassion for that because in some ways, and this is going to sound backwards, in some ways, I'm actually grateful that I had some glaring traumas because as I entered therapy myself, it was like, oh yeah, I definitely have to work on that and that. You don't need a psychology degree to know that, you know, that has some baggage with it. But what I've learned through my career is that that's a weird, twisted kind of blessing at a point because it's those of you who maybe had safer parenting, but parenting that was maybe really immature, that makes a lot of us overfunction and parentified, makes us little mini adults, that makes us miss our childhood. That's a really hard thing to put your finger on. If you were neglected, if your parents were just too busy, if you had a sick sibling, you know, that was very, very sick, your parents, their energies were taken away from you in ways that we can have compassion for and understand. But that's really difficult to understand. Well, then what happened to me? Nothing bad happened to me. Why am I so sensitive? And especially, I think, with women in the present day, I'm in my 40s. We've all grown up with these you know, great empowerment messages that we can do whatever we want, right? And we can. But so many women especially seem to be taking on trying to do absolutely everything. And I think that's such an interesting warping of that message. Oh, you can do whatever you want has somehow turned into, well, you better do it all. So I think our our overwhelm, our stress, our struggle, all of these things are kind of coming at us from our childhoods, from the present day, from all the things that we take on as, as women who have big goals. I'm very ambitious. That's not an easy thing to be ambitious and then also manage our stress while we're highly sensitive. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a lot to take on. And I think a lot of women are just incredibly hard on themselves. I mean, I know that I used to go into work and obviously I was drinking a lot at the same time, which makes your nervous system more stressed and makes your sleep terrible and hard to hard to honestly remember everything at the same time. But I used to look around me and be like, how can other people cope with this? What is wrong with me? Um, you know, how can other people like clearly get criticism? Cause I was so sensitive to everyone else's mood and everyone else's um, words and the messages, you know, underneath those words and not basically completely break down. You know what I mean? Like I was trying so hard to like make everything okay. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. 
And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. I think if we come from struggle, that's what we figure out how to do. Like, that's the compensation. Yeah. Which makes sense. Like, it's like, ah, oh, if things were hard when we were young, we learn to overfocus on everybody else outwardly. It's like, oh, I f- I'm going to figure it out from my little kid logic. I'll make everybody else A-OK. And then they love me and I'm safe. If I make everybody feel great around me, nobody's going to abandon me. Nobody's going to lash out at me. Ha ha. I'll manage everybody in the world. That's how I'll get through life. And then it blows up. I think, I think one of the biggest tragedies, and I'm hoping it's changing for younger people now, but for my age, I graduated high school in 1998 and I'm I'm from New Orleans, which is like the vice drinking capital of the entire planet. And when you grow up there, you kind of know that, but you don't know that because whatever you grow up in is your normal. So I grew up going to bars at 16 and it wasn't until I left the state that I realized, oh, that's not everybody's story. (laughs) Other places actually uphold those laws and don't let you in and actually card. And I think it's such a tragedy that for so many of us, alcohol is one of the first things that we use as a coping skill and a coping strategy of trying to numb out our, our rawness or, or numb out our struggle. Because historically, I don't think we do very well in the human condition with passing down real coping strategies, person to person, generation to generation, which is kind of wild and crazy for me to say out loud, because we would think logically that that would be the main thing we would be passing down generation to generation. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. And people are sort of, you know, even if you have positive parenting, sort of thrust out in the world to kind of cope for, for themselves. And that manifests in, in very, very different ways. I was smiling when you were saying about, you know, you grow up and you figure out like, this is how I'm going to be safe. And this is how people are going to love me because my parents grew up moving to different um, continents, actually, and countries every couple of years. So I was oh, in wow. Paraguay and South America when I was six and seven years old and Zambia in, in Southern Africa when I was eight, wow. nine, ten. And both my parents worked a lot. They were diplomats in American embassies overseas, and their job was very, you know, quote unquote, important. It was. It was very important, but it was clearly more important than parenting small children, you know? And so we had a lot of like housekeepers, you know, who basically took care of us. And so on Saturdays, when I was seven years old in Paraguay, we, my parents would go play tennis and I would wait till the minute they left pretending I was like lounging, jump up and clean the entire house for two hours and then hide. So they would like come home and be like, who cleaned this? You know what I mean? And I only say, I mean, A, that's ridiculous. I have an eight-year-old daughter. She would never consider doing that. Like, I know how crazy that is. 
But not only that, like we literally had a live-in housekeeper because we lived in South America and that was a thing. So like beyond (laughs) ridiculous. I think that's where the people pleasing really grows in us. And, And I love that you share that because I think so many people who have maybe an abundant background really struggle. It's like, because the narrative of the day is, oh my goodness, like poverty, like, but you know, that's kind of what gets the the compassion or the understanding. But when you grow, I grew up very poor. And when you, and when you grow up poor, you understand that that's your struggle. And I think for people that have more, it's a lot harder to figure out where is that struggle? It's like, really, I had struggle. We had live in help, right? That's what you just said. But when you really pull back from it and go, oh, wow, like little you must've been trying so hard, like just to figure out like where she fit and what she could do and how to make her parents happy and trying to get some of that attention. And those, those people pleasing parts. I, of course we can't have statistics on this, right? But I am willing to bet that almost every highly sensitive person struggles on in some way with people pleasing and codependency. And one of the ways we define codependency is self love uh, deficiency. And that I think that that term that that way of excri- describing it really sets in. And it really shows us what we're doing when we're trying so hard to please people or to get approval. Because in those moments we abandon ourselves. I think alcohol becomes the balm for so much of that, especially because almost all of us start drinking so very young or start drinking in that in those first stages of oh I'm getting into adulthood. And so we wind up pairing this adult freedom and this sort of excitement slash anxiety of getting into our adult responsibilities with drinking. Yeah. And you're right about the coping mechanisms. And I love that you said that because I know um, about sort of everybody, you know, struggling with some of this because a lot of people are like, ah, first world problems. Or I went to my therapist and was like, I have anxiety. And I have no idea why, like nothing happened to me. What is wrong with me that, you know, I'm, I'm not okay. And, you know, she, she took me back to imagining, you know, my daughter at age three and some of the stuff of just being absent and not important. And you know what I mean? It's, it's Mm -hmm. interesting because you feel like you should be okay. And that goes to the narrative of like, why can't I cope? Yeah. Well, that alcohol gets us in such a vicious cycle too, yeah. because it makes us more raw, especially if we're sensitive. Now, yeah. I didn't know that when I was younger. And I, I think this is an important part that I don't want to miss. And I don't think we said it earlier, but I do have a an, an LCDC. I used to have an LAC. It's a licensed addictions counselor or a licensed mm-hmm. chemical dependency counselor. And I started my career in addiction. Oh, Interesting. But the the truth of my story is that I don't like making alcohol bad. I don't like making drugs bad either because the truth of it is that I was so raw and had so little coping that I don't know if I'd be here today if I hadn't numbed out at times with drugs and alcohol. And I don't consider myself a fully sober person. Right now, I, I might have one to like three drinks a year. So I've never had to do like a full on sobriety or. So when I was getting through school, I was a bartender in the French Quarter. There is no crazier drinking scene than that. I drank while I worked. I would check in, get on my bar, ice up, 
and open up three drinks for myself because I started when in New Orleans, you have three for one happy hour. Mm -hmm. That's how we started shifts. So that's basically if you're trying to become alcoholic, like exactly what you would do, right? It's it's like when you really step back and look at that, it's like, oh, geez, where is this going to go? It's a crash course in how to develop a significant alcohol problem. Yes, yes. I was so raw at the time. And when I look back, it's it's so sad because I really had no other coping, but that did get me through. Yeah. When I was finishing college, Hurricane Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. And so my counseling program was just blown up, blown out. There weren't professors. There weren't classes. It was a another trauma, another tragic struggle. But it was divine for me because when I went back to New Orleans that same year to finish my graduate program... I needed an internship and because there weren't any more internships because there just weren't any people, I had to take what I could get. And I had a friend working in addiction and I remember going, I don't want to work in addiction. I have been working in bars. Like I want to get away from drinkers. I really do. I need to get away from drinkers for me. I was still a heavy drinker at the time. Getting into that program to finish my master's degree that place hired me. So I, I wound up working there for some years as a counselor. From the trauma of Katrina, plus New Orleans being one of the hotbeds because of Katrina for the opioid crisis. Once Katrina hit, they were passing out opiates to everyone. Let, I mean, like it was candy. It There's a documentary on Netflix called The Pharmacist. And I was treating people that were getting pills from that pill mill. But what I started, where I started my career was in intensive outpatient treatment. And then I moved into the trauma program for dual diagnosis of trauma and addiction. And what I started really realizing, despite the teaching of you only can do 100% sobriety. And, and I think that's a big problem in the field of mental health. That there's, there's still a lot of that mindset that you need to be 100% sober. And some people do. But a lot of people don't, or a lot of people are not going to go from full-on inebriation to full-on sobriety. They at least have to test out before they psychologically wrap their head around fully giving it up if they need to. But what I saw was that when we started giving coping strategies and treating the trauma, some people just didn't have that addictive tendency. It just became sort of a reasonable piece. When you sort of distribute your coping, to healthier things, you don't go for that main coping strategy anymore. So I'm a big believer in just instead of trying to drink less initially, let's add to your coping. Let's just add to your coping. Let's get some coping in there. Let's get some muscles around some other ways of being. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that like you said, a lot of reasons that people drink is because it's the easy button of coping mechanisms, of numbing out, of tuning down the noise. So I've read that as many as 15 to 20% of the population are thought to be highly sensitive. Do you think that's accurate or is that just a number that's out there? I do think that's accurate. And I think it comes into focus when I actually flip the numbers. So if you're highly sensitive out there, th- this is what makes it make sense to me. And something about this soothes me. It means that if it's 15 to 20% of us are highly sensitive and even less of us, I'd say probably like 7% would be my guess, would be empathic. 
then that means that for all of the days of my life, all of my development, whenever I was getting advice, whenever I was in a group of people, it means 80 to 85% of them were different than me. It means all that advice that I got or direction that I got or, hey, you should do this, you shouldn't do this that we get when we're growing up was really from people that were totally not wired like me. Not emotionally, not physically, not mentally. They were just, they don't move through the world like me. And I do believe that that's a big part of why I felt crazy at times in my younger life because that 80, 85% really seals it for me. It's like, oh yeah, and lots of group activities or events or classrooms, you know, the things we do in life, that just soothes me. It makes sense. It's like, yeah, that's how it's felt. That I I am that different. I am I am the weirdo that I have made peace with. So I say that with a lot of love. That that I'm weird and I embrace that fully. Uh, I like my weird. But when we don't know that we're weird or we're allowed to be weird or there are other people successful with our particular flavor of weird in life, success, we do think something is wrong with us. And if I if I think my my magical superpower I would like at this stage of my life would be to be able to pull accurate statistics out of the air. Like, you know, like I would like to know That's how amazing. much time, <laughs> right? Like how much time have I spent in my life wondering what's wrong with me? Yeah. Well, so question for you, if someone's listening to this and they're like, Am I a highly sensitive person? Can you tell us sort of what they might be feeling, what they might be experiencing? How do they you know, know if they're on that spectrum or might be just like, what's wrong with me? You know? Okay. So high sensitivity, we can look at it through our sensory system. So we've got sight, sound, smell, touch. Okay. Like I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to the wind hitting my skin. Okay. Temperature. I want to be comfortable. I do not like being cold. Even though I live in a cold climate, I like getting snuggly. So there's the sensory aspect. And some of that may even sound like, oh, am I on um, sort of the Asperger's or the autism spectrum like we used to have? And we might be. There are some people that can make the argument that we might be very, very, very extremely high-functioning autistic. So there's that lens too. And I believe less at this point in my career in diagnosis than lenses we look through because we change, we evolve, we let go of what no longer serves us. So there's the sensory sensitivity. Then there's emotional sensitivity. I can sense emotion. I have a lot of emotion inside of me, okay? If I'm out in public and a baby smiles at me, that can make me tear up, just the beauty of it. So we have really high highs and lower lows because of our emotional intensity if we think we are an emotionally highly sensitive person, okay? That's really important to consider because hearing me say that, you may hear it. Easy to maybe think that we're bipolar, or to get some bipolar diagnoses because, oh, doesn't that sound very bipolar? My highs are high, my lows are low. So you might not be able to see me right now if we're on just audio. But if there's a range, okay, sort of, sort of a range, and I have my, my hands kind of in a little rangy position here, it's like the normal average person. And yeah, okay, none of us are normal and average. But yeah, you know, the normal and average person that's not a highly sensitive person, it's like their highs are going to go to a certain height. And their lows are going to go to a certain low. And ours are just, we just have a wider range. So we have to learn how to work with that. That's why working with things like our self-talk. If we're using self-talk that scares us more, we're going to push ourselves 
into more intense fear. So we've got to learn how to take responsibility for our sensitivity. Okay. So, so we have a, a broader emotional range as a tribe who's been working specifically with highly sensitive people for a long time. I can tell you there's some surprising things that we tend to have in common. Okay. We tend to have high achievement in us, in us as, as an individual and as a tribe. Because if we see and sense what's going on in the world, it's another way that we're sensitive. We're the observers. Okay? And we can see how we learn to be the observers. I think you shared story today that shows that observer, like you were little, you were seven, you were watching your parents waiting for them to go. And even though you knew you had a maid, you were watching. And then to be able to clean a house fully top to bottom at seven, you're observing a whole lot of stuff and you're paying attention to so many details. So we are very observational. Mm -hmm. I could make the argument that almost every highly sensitive person I've known will admit with a little bit of glee, yeah, I love people watching. Like, oh, yeah. We just <laughs> like it, right? Like that is, some, that is some good shit. So of course we are. We're more finely tuned in our nervous system to be observant. Okay. Not just observant of nature, but observant of each other. Some of that is surely trauma-induced. Okay, My mother was a rager. If you, if you come from a household where someone was raging, damn sure for your own survival, you're going to develop finely attuning to how they walk through that door. Okay, So that's another sign of high sensitivity. Let's see. Another one is that we tend to be spongy. Okay, that might be the best word I have for it. So we soak up what other people are feeling. And when we're really wounded, I talk a lot about things coming from our wound or coming from our healing. When we're coming from our wound, sensitivity can feel really burdensome. Most people start this work with me going, all right, how do I turn it off? How do I end it? Like, help me minimize this shit because like I've had quite enough of feeling. And that's understandable. That's our anger at it. And sometimes it's our grief at it because we look out at other people and we go, hey, you know, Joe Blow over there seems like he's having a much easier time because he's walking through life, not overthinking. We tend to be overthinkers for all these reasons that I'm naming. Okay? Joe Blow over there is just thinking about 10 thoughts to my 10,000. That looks easier. But because we're sensing more, we're taking in more, we're sponging up more from other people. Okay? We're also overthinking. We tend to not know the difference between processing and over-processing. We wear ourselves out. One of our universal tribal complaints will be we're so tired. We're so worn out. We try too hard. Perfectionism, ooh, runs high in this tribe. Okay, so fine line between high integrity and perfectionism. Okay, and that's one of those lines I try to walk and help my clients walk. Okay, so that's another thing we have in common. Um, we get overwhelmed very easily. Our nervous system is finely attuned. So if I have Joe Blow hanging out with me, Joe Blow's nervous system, yeah, he's picking up a few things like, yeah, maybe the sky is turning and it's going to rain. I am sensing so much, even on a subconscious level. So we get more tired more easily. And instead of being angry at ourselves about that, instead of listening to the 80 to 85% of people who are like, why are you tired? I don't get it. I'm not tired. <laughs> we have to do a lot of what I call radical acceptance of who we are. And, and we grieve. We really do grieve a lot. If I look at what you shared, when we're parentified that way, when we're like little mini adults, when we're taking things on like that, 
we miss out on childhood. The essence of childhood is that it's carefree, is that we're safe enough to be able to be carefree, that we our emotional needs are met so that we don't have to worry about them or fret. When those aren't met, we wind up over-functioning. So we're overtired. So you can hear as I'm going through this, all these little bitty things kind of connect. If we're spongy and we sponge up things in the world, my goodness, American politics in the last few years don't need to sponge any of that shit up, but damn near impossible not to, right? So we need coping strategies. And if we don't have them, we're going to pour alcohol over them. What do you feel like is, I know you, you work with people on this all the time. And when you were describing different people, I was like, I feel like everybody needs therapy to process like how to negotiate the world. But what are the first coping mechanisms or skills you, you think highly sensitive people need to work through or empaths? And I'll use it right now. See, years ago, I would have beaten myself up for having a brain fart and losing it. And it, it's Friday. We've had a busy week. You know, my, my brain might lose it sometimes. I don't always track. Before I worked on my critical voice, that would have eaten me alive. I would have spent hours after this interview going, what's wrong with you? You know, All right, like, why did you do that? You put your foot in your mouth. Oh, blah, blah, blah. She's going to have to edit that now. I gave her more work to do. You know, just berating ourselves. And in the absence of getting what we needed in childhood, whether that's because of neglect or abuse or just really busy parenting, whatever it is. It seems like our human psyche fills in with negativity and criticalness. So unfortunate. So, so many of us have these absolute inner bullies in our heads. And the thing about the inner bully is that it's not super obvious. Like my inner bully doesn't walk up and go, hey, shithead. That would be kind of obvious. I could go, hey, I know that's nasty. I've done enough therapy to know, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that with myself. If we're really smart, okay, so is that inner bully. So is that inner critic. And so our inner critic and our inner bully is like, hey, what are you going to do? Really? You're going to go to bed early? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Or the inner gremlins from addiction go, really? Don't you think you deserve a drink today? So we have to really learn how to identify these voices. I utilize what I call wise woman and wise man. We want to cultivate this wise woman and wise man part of ourselves. I want to make sure all the time that my wise woman is driving the bus of my life, if you will. And if I'm really paying attention to myself mindfully, so mindfulness is a tone coping strategy, then I can be in charge of tapping in that wise woman, understanding that I have an inner adolescent. I have an inner child in me, as we all do. I have this inner critic. If we don't understand our complexity and start to really invite ourselves to understand our complexity, then we think things like, well, I should think one thing about this. No way. My wise woman, like even if I think about food, my wise woman goes, yeah, let's eat really healthy. My inner child goes, fried chicken and macaroni and cheese, please. I have to negotiate that inside of me. And if we're observing more than the average person, and that's leading us to think a whole lot more than the average person, then we have to really manage these inner parts. And no, I'm not talking about multiple personalities. I'm not talking about dissociative identity disorder. That's, that's a different realm. This is just if you're a smart and emotionally, emotional intelligence counts too, not just IQ, but a well-rounded kind of intelligence, then we have to understand these different parts and understand what's at play when. And that's a big part of taking care of ourselves. 
When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. I mean, I think it's interesting in a couple of different ways because in some ways we feel like that inner critic voice is protecting us, right? It's, oh my God, if I let go of this voice that is pushing me to do more, be more, not slack off, I'm going to be safer in this world. And then at the same time, you're filled with anxiety and talking shit to yourself and doing all these things. And it's such a push pull. One of the things my therapist helped me with and told me to uh, do is I started working with her right when I quit drinking. My daughter was two. And she like, is a mini me, like looks exactly like me, but thank God is way more of a badass and less sensitive and less of a people pleaser and all that. But she, you know, when I was feeling that way, she's like, imagine your daughter, would you say that to her? If she felt this way, would you tell her to suck it up and what the fuck is wrong with you and get it together or whatever it is? And that helped me um, you know, that idea of like reparenting yourself or being kinder to yourself. I think that's one of the most powerful techniques anybody can share with anybody else. And, and really the most powerful te- techniques to me are, are very simple because when we start to get in a struggle, if it's complex, we're not going to do it. We're not even going to be able to find it or grab it. So we need simplicity. Mm-hmm. That might be part of the coping. But what she asked you to do, I said it, I had sessions before I had this interview with you. I said it three times today to three different people. And and I'll say it this strongly to people. If you will not say it to a five-year-old, don't you dare say it to yourself. And that's the truth about almost every highly sensitive person I've ever known. I've gone, I could pick some random child. It doesn't even have to be your own. And go, really? Say what you just said to yourself to this child. No, no. Not only wouldn't you, you couldn't. And when, And that's self-love, you guys. When you actually basically look at yourself and go, oh, oh, this is how I need to love myself. So if you're not going to say it to a five-year-old, you cannot say it to yourself. And really, a lot of our healing is the reparenting part is healthy discipline. And in healthy discipline, we discipline that part. We go, no, 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 that's not okay. The same way if we saw two small children 
and one was bullying the other, most healthy adults would step in and be like, hey, that is not okay. Or we would empower one child to be able to say that to the other child. We have to do that inside of our own psychology. And this, this is why we work with good fit therapists, y'all, and why it's different than just kind of talking to a friend. The training that we have is in understanding a lot of our psychology is so paradoxical. It's so backwards. That part of ourselves, like you named that the inner bully and the inner critic is really trying to protect us. Yes. All of our stuff is attempting to protect us, but a lot of it is backwards and it bites us in the ass because the very thing that winds up hurting us after I left my childhood and became an adult, my parental abuse didn't come with me because I left, but their programming in my head came with me. And so that critical voice, hey, don't you think you should work a little bit more? Very easy to be a workaholic. It's the other thing about our tribe. Okay, We might struggle with workaholism. We also might get fired more. Oh, yeah, I should have said that earlier. And the we might get, get fired more. We might get fired more and laid off because we are the squeaky wheels. When we come into a situation because we are the seers, we are the observers, we see how everything can be better. And so if things don't run smoothly and someone values this and wants us to do this, oh, we want to smooth it out. We want things to run all oiled up. When people don't want that from us, we tend to have a very hard time. And they don't say thank you for it. They're like, hey, just no, no, thank you. We'd like you to just stop trying to make it better and just do what we want, despite how crazy it might work. Mm-hmm. It's part of why corporate America can be really hard for highly sensitive people because there's yeah. so much red tape. There's so much struggle. Well, I was going to say it was interesting because when I was in corporate America, um, it was great when I was you know, an individual contributor. I was very detail oriented. I was very sort of hyper vigilant. I was very productive, you know, all those things. And as I sort of moved up the ranks, you know, team building, all that stuff that works for a while. Once I was a director, um, my VP gave me the direct feedback that I needed to be less caring for the people on my team and less caring for the people who worked with me and less empathetic, basically more of a hard ass. And that she thought I was being, you know, giving people too many chances. And I was very, um, you know, when, when stuff came down that I thought would hurt people, um, you know, emotionally or their workload or this person has this person in their family who's sick or this person has these kids or, you know, I would really struggle emotionally with it. And like you said, be the squeaky wheel, be like that. This isn't okay. You know, we can't do this. And, um, yeah, it was hard, you know? Yeah. I think it's really, really hard. And that's part of why I teach boundaries. I teach a boundaries course once every year. I just finished it. Mm. And boundaries are just going to be an art that we're always working on as sensitive people. Cause with our big giant hearts, we, we really are the natural caretakers. We're the natural the natural born sort of therapeutic ears, like people want to come with us. They want to come and share with us. Finding those boundaries for ourselves, our own hearts, our own spirits, and then how that meshes up against something like what your boss wants and that directive. That caring less, there there is some wisdom in that. Because when we walk the world kind of, you know, turned up to level 10 caring, we, we probably do benefit, I would say we do, about learning how to dial that down so that I can have control over turning that on and up or down and less. 
So we learn all of that. And that's why I think it's such a layered kind of thing. And that's part of why I wanted to do my podcast was it's like I learned the most from people that would be real and honest with me and respected my sensitivity. But most sensitive people walk the world wanting other people to give them the acceptance for their sensitivity. They want to hear from other people. You're okay. This is all right. It's not so weird that you're sensitive. I, I don't I don't mind when you cry and then they want to accept themselves. It will never work that way. So we have to really work to accept ourselves, love ourselves through who we are, and then sort of lean into the world so that we're leading with an energy where we're like, hey, I accept me. There's so much power in that. And, and it's always going to be a struggle to find those boundaries when you're in a position when someone's asking you to be a hard ass. There's also something with sensitive people. I've had to work on this hard and it has shot me in the foot a lot. I think as a tribe, we are very motivated by generosity. I think if someone is generous with us, it motivates us. We work, we're hard, like we work hard, like we show up, we'll give extra. And one of the things that I've learned about highly sensitive people is we can project some of our own ways of being onto other people in ways that don't help us at all. When I've projected that, that generosity uh, motivation, it's actually blown up in my face because other people are not so motivated. When, when we're very generous with the average person, they take advantage. That doesn't motivate them to work harder or to have more skin in the game. It actually demotivates them. And then I've had my feelings hurt. How do I do this? Because generosity motivates me. We also do that with understanding. We tend to really value understanding. I, I say this to a lot of sensitive people. If I explain the purpose of something to a highly sensitive person, they're like likely to walk to the ends of the earth to make it happen. So we love understanding. We paint the picture. It makes sense to us. We, are, we got it. We're on it. Okay. What a lot of us do is we try with narcissistic dynamics, with low intelligence dynamics, with low maturity dynamics. We try to make other people get it, other people who don't want to get it. And that's another way we wear ourselves out. We, we are over explainers that way. And so that's another way we can start to boundary our own energy and start to say to our own inner psyche, our own inner child, hey, they didn't ask for that understanding. They don't seem like they want that from me. Let's just hold it for us. It's enough that I understand it. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step -step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one -on -one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one-day-at-a-time approach. 
Instead, it's a step-by-step -step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. I coach and counsel people to work on becoming their own authority figure. Because when you start to become your own authority figure as a coping strategy, you are less desperately driven to get that approval elsewhere. And that desperation, that setup of, I need your approval. Uh-oh, what if I don't get it? Then we're going to go to some of those other unhealthy coping strategies. It's when yeah. we might reach for the wine. I love that you said that because everything you talked about um, applies so much to the skills that women need to develop when they stop drinking, like the boundaries, figuring out how to take time for themselves, how to not get overwhelmed, how to not, you know, how to lower the bar so that they're not strung so thin that they have nothing left is huge. And when you talked about becoming your own authority and not desperately trying to get acceptance or permission or whatever it is from other people. You know, if you don't do that, it is really easy to succumb to people pleasing or what's easier for everyone else. And a lot of times the social pressure we get is to drink, you know, and we so desperately don't want to be othered that we're willing to sort of easily give in to like, well, it makes everybody more comfortable if I drink or, you know, they want me to because I'm more fun. Or when I drink, I have fewer boundaries, you know, it shuts off my mind. And so I don't have to process these emotions with which therefore makes people more comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. That's a big piece of what we learn when we heal is allowing other people to be in their discomfort is very, very important because our discomfort as human beings that that is part of what motivates us to grow, to change, to evolve, if it does. And so when we try to protect somebody from their own discomfort, we're actually thwarting their own growth process. So there's lots of ways just to learn and to teach yourself why it's wise to let go of that, why it's even loving to allow somebody to be in their discomfort. When you drink less or decide not to drink and you're in a social gathering and you say that and you own that and you be that in front of somebody, what you're doing is you're holding up a mirror. And the human ego does not say, thank you so much for holding up that mirror to me. <laughs> we would be a much healthier society if it did do that, but it doesn't. It goes, hey, fuck you. I don't want to see that in myself. You're not drinking makes me look at my own drinking like there might be a problem. How dare you do that to me? I would be so much more comfortable if you would just drink, please drink, 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 so I don't have to think about this and feel about this. And so if you can know that that's the process, you got to really hold that line there and become your own authority figure, be your own self-support, tap in that wise woman to go, Hey, this is that moment. Stand tall. 
that's another very simple coping strategy I can offer, actually. And I, a lot of us, when we feel a little sheepish about what we're doing, a little like, oh, yikes, I'm bracing for it. People are not going to like that I'm holding up this mirror just by standing here breathing. I'm holding up this mirror. That, that's the thing. It's nothing you're doing. You just stand in there breathing and they feel that, that reflected back at them. One of the things I see a lot of women in particular do is they go small. They go little girl. Their shoulders hunch. They look at the ground. They get about five inches shorter. They try to go a little invisible. And what happens there is, to my way of thinking, your inner child looks up at grown up you and goes, oh, shit, she's shrinking. And basically, that's the adult self leaving. And then we feel very little kid in that moment. And I think that's a very big trigger to get, to get people to pick up a drink because then they need coping for that in the moment. So one of the simplest things, and it's kind of like taking a breath, it sounds almost too simple to be useful, is get big in your body. When you feel like you want to go small, spread your clavicles apart. Let your shoulders be wide. Let your heart space be wide. Like reach up through the crown of your head. Get tall. Take up space. Let your voice be a little bit louder than it might be naturally. And then your inner child looks up at you like, wow, I grew up into a big grown up and she gets to take up space. She's not shrinking. I, I have a right to stand up here. She's taking mm -hmm. care of me. Yeah. You don't have like to taking care of yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know what's interesting? You talked about letting other people sort of be in their discomfort. What about, I know myself, I am. I really like harmony when there are negative emotions around me, anger, frustration, whatever it is, I'm very, very uncomfortable. And I go into that fawn response of like, let me do whatever I can to make it okay for you. And I see the same thing in my son. Like when my husband gets upset, I fawn and my son fawns and he's 14 now. And I'm just like, how do we move through that discomfort for ourselves. I think naming it is important. And at 14, I would name it with him. Just say, hey, I notice we both do this. And then if, you're, if your daughter or your husband has some intensity, or even if you're watching a movie and something starts to get uncomfortable, knowing that you get to model for him can become your motivator. But I, I say a lot, like, um, it's almost like we have to learn how to sit on our hands and bite our, bite our tongue. So it's, it's like, Nikki, like a lot of people laugh with me, like but during our work, they're like, am I really paying you to learn how to do less and just be still and actually do nothing? I'm like, yep, you are. Because it sounds so easy to do. <laughs> and it is easy. Like it's simple, but it gets easier just the more we practice, just like anything. So the first few times I could say, I think you can say to him things like, hey, let's actually have some fun with this. When we catch some natural intensity in the world, some uncomfortable feelings, let's just practice both doing nothing, going still. Maybe we actually sit on our hands and just let it happen. Because part of what we get to show ourselves is this impulse to run and save. Yeah. We have to show ourselves enough times, wait a minute, we're not going to save them. And then we have to see that they don't die because we're not Superman or Superwoman that's like coming to save the day. We have to basically go, oh, look what happened when I sat on my hands. Oh, they actually figured it out? Ah, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They did better? They're okay? 
they got their emotion out and then they kept on living. Wow. Okay. And then we might notice more of the real deeper emotions that are there. Because in that, because a lot of times what that is under the surface is I don't know my role. I don't know what to do with myself when somebody else has intensity or emotion. And the truth is nothing. There's nothing you have to adjust about you because somebody else is struggling. Here's another little piece. If you're highly sensitive, I highly recommend working to separate the difference between empathy and guilt. Interesting. Tell me more about that. Empathy is like an equal. It starts with an E, okay? Empathy, equal. That is an equal, hey, I see you. You're in struggle. I empathize with that. That is really tough. Guilt is about I did something wrong. And guilt is a very important human emotion. And of course, we don't ever want to feel guilty, but you kind of do. Because if you don't have guilt, you're a sociopath. Narcissists have very low guilt. So when we look at it that way, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm really supposed to have some guilt. That guilt is our moral compass. If I stomp on your foot by accident, that initial just little guilty feeling is there to goose me a little bit to go, hey, Nikki, correct that with her. Don't just step on her foot and keep on going. That little, oops, I'm sorry, I hurt you. That little flash of fast guilt for a moment like that is our moral compass. It tells me, oh, turn around to Casey and go, I'm so sorry. I didn't see your foot there. Are you okay? Did I hurt you? And make sure you, my my sister in the human experience, is okay. That's a very important part of how humans are wired to socialize. That's why it's so problematic if we're deficient or missing that part. We do bad shit in the world. Okay. So for highly sensitive people, we have smushed up and enmeshed guilt and empathy. So, and you'll hear people say it, they'll go, oh my gosh. And they'll start to have empathy and they'll go, I feel so badly for them. So we have to learn how to just equally empathize and let go of the, I did something bad feeling. Because that bad feeling, that guilt says, hey, Nikki, do something about this. That's part of what is getting sort of tripwired inside of us when we see somebody else have emotion and our empathy and our guilt are intertwined when they're not supposed to be. We go, oh, I must do something. I must fix something about this. And that's wrong. It's actually, how do I just be witness? We need people to witness us. Wow, that looks really hard. I'm so sorry you're struggling with that. Here's another way to not fix it and go into guilt. Hey, this is so hard. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know you're going to figure it out because you are totally capable of figuring it out. If you need any help, I'm here. That's another piece. When we're people pleasers or codependent, easiest check-in is, did anybody ask me to do this? I'm I'm laughing as well because I did a podcast episode on uh, boundaries and how to be a boundaries boss. And I swear to God, like every time someone, you know, she or you is talking about this, I think of my husband and I'm like, damn, I keep getting the same advice and I've got to work on it. Like, why do you know what the right answer is? Who asked you to fix this? You know, like just wanting to take away them being, being unhappy. So I love my, 
I love my free weekly therapy, you know, being like, damn it, I got to work on this. Oh, yeah. And it is work. Like it takes intention. It takes coming back to it over and over again. I know all this stuff. You know, I can write you papers about it and talk for ages. I still have to practice and keep the muscles of these things strong. And it's just like going to the gym. It's like realizing, okay, I haven't done leg day in a while. It's like, all right, I got to tighten up those boundaries. It's why I have people come back with year after year to my boundaries course. I mean, this is in terms of emotional relating to ourselves and each other, we're going to be working on this all the days of our life, really. For those of us that are seekers, that are mindful. You know, it's interesting when you talked about feeling and feeling things really deeply. Um, one of my favorite essays of all time is something Glennon Doyle wrote way back in her Carry On Warrior book. And it was sort of, uh, to my sober friend on her first day or, you know, it was titled something like that, this chapter. And she talked about the process of getting sober being like recovering from frostbite that you've been numb for so long. And at first your emotions come back as tingles. You know, like when your when your foot is coming back from being asleep, and then suddenly they feel like daggers. You know, loneliness and anger and fear and all these things, and it's really hard. You know, a lot of people when I'm when I'm working with them in early sobriety, they're like, "Why am I crying? Like I haven't cried in years. What is going on? You know, what do you have to say about that? Any thoughts on sort of that process?" Yeah, I, I so when I got to graduate school, I was really pissed off because the things that I was learning that I realized, oh, we've known this about psychology since at least like the 50s. Why aren't we teaching this more to the population? Like, why isn't this more available? I should not have to get to a master's level of education in, in psychology and then in counseling to learn some of this stuff. Right? So I think really understanding that this stuff is not really rocket science, but if somebody had taught us when we were in second grade or fifth grade or when we were 12, that emotions are okay. Even gratitude around emotions. I mean, even the language like thinking of emotions, like some of them are bad or some of them are good, very problematic. We need our entire range of emotions. So when I am down, okay, I can even have a gratitude practice about the uncomfortable feelings. Like I know a lot of people who have died for multiple reasons, illness, addiction, accidents, suicide. I'm so glad to be having this uncomfortable feeling right now. I don't have to have the answer right now. I just have to feel this and breathe. And because we don't just see anybody do that when we're younger, we don't hear language like that. It is so foreign. We were like, whoa, what is this feeling shit? What am I supposed to do with it? Yeah. Most of us have seen people drink and bury it over a lifetime. So our inner psyche is looking up at us like, hey, this is the time you go get a drink. We think of that as triggers, but it's also a pattern of just, hey, everybody you've ever seen. You think about if even if you just watched Mad Men, if you were a little green alien and you just came down and watched Mad Men, you would think everyone just, that's all they drink. They don't drink water. They just drink alcohol. That's really what you would think. We have all these subliminal messages inside of us. So dealing with the rawness when we start to deal with 
oh, I'm not some kind of machine that's just supposed to operate in some feelingless vacuum. Huh. Interesting that I've had that expectation. I've never, ever thought of like that, but really I've had that expectation. So it's making peace with our humanity. That's the way I put it a lot of times. And I, and I, I am, I am sick of the messaging that has been and continues to teach women that they are supposed to move through this life as if they're some kind of damn robot. You're not a robot. You're a human being. You need rest. We, need, we I think some women treat their phones better than they treat themselves because you stop and plug in this phone. <laughs> you don't look at the phone like, God, what a piece of shit. I can't believe you need to be plugged in right now. Right? How dare you? I'm just, you should keep going. You should be able to do more than you were charged to do. No, you just stop and you plug the phone in because you've accepted that that's what it needs. You don't have some kind of emotional struggle. Should I plug it in? Should I not plug it in? Does it deserve to be plugged in? Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love that. I'm going to think about that all the time now. So there's like a radical simplicity we can start to offer ourselves as we start the journey of getting to know our emotional selves. I'm a yoga teacher um, in training. I haven't taught in some years. But I remember early on them saying, oh, you store emotions in the hips. And I was like, what kind of bullshit is this? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And lo and behold, we would get in the hips and I'd just cry in embarrassment, in shame. What's wrong with me? Thank goodness those teachers would say things like, seeing me tear up, let your emotions out. Stop trying to cram it down. And that's what you start to notice when you start to attune to yourself. And that's an important shift, that outward observational style that we have developed about giving it all away. Be hypervigilant, pay attention, pay attention. And I had severe PTSD symptoms most of my life. That that hypervigilance was so strong in me. And the truth is, if you're looking outward so intensely, you don't have the time, space, energy, or musculature, if you will, to look inward. So we if we stop drinking and start to look inward. It is. It's it's almost as awkward as a baby learning to walk because you're starting to deal with your real human adult emotions and every baggage that has been shoved down in there. And you just got to give yourself permission to be in the messiness of it. It is okay to be a messy human. It's not okay to, to dump our shit on other people, but it is okay to be messy. And starting to really deal with ourselves feels kind of like emptying a closet that we've just crammed shit into for a really long time. And I don't know about you, but for me, anytime I try to organize something like that, there's a point at which everything is kind of out and it just looks like absolute chaos. And it's like, why did I do this? Why did I do this? And I just want to shove it all back in. And in those moments, those are the moments where we have to just breathe and slow down internally and just go one thing at a time. Because if you start just if you run, that closet is going to stay a shit show. And now it's all everywhere. And so if you, if you just breathe and lean in and go, just pick up one thing. Just put this one thing back. It'll start to have order and it'll start to make sense. But it's not going to feel like that until you get to the sense-making part, to the organization part. And you got to be willing to go through that, what the fuck did I do moment? Why am I looking at this? Why is this so messy? There's no way this mess can all be cleaned up. And you have to kind of tap in almost like a faith 
even if you have to say to yourself, like I had to do this with my healer, it's not about the person. It's about having somebody as an anchor in your mind. And if you can't believe it for yourself that it's figure outable, then lean into the people who know it's figure outable for you. I used to feel messy at times and my healer is Lisa. And I'd say to myself, Lisa believes I can do this. Lisa said she will believe it for me until I can believe it myself. All right. I don't, I don't think Lisa's full of shit. I don't, I don't think she is. All right. Maybe, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can. Let me just do this one thing. And you just have to be in it with yourself enough to start to prove to yourself, oh, I can, because you, you tame that closet. And then there's another little closet or another little shelf. And it's the same in our physical realm that way as it is in our emotional realm. And your, your down emotions are not wrong. And, and I'm going to say this too, because the suicide rate is insane in this country and only rising. Okay. If you don't manage that inner bully, okay, you cannot escape yourself. And so people try to hit the escape button of suicide because if I'm being an asshole to myself in my own head, I don't have anywhere else to go. And that's when that suicidal ideation of, well, maybe I should just kill myself. Maybe people would be better off without me starts to take over. And it's the perfect scenario for the inner critic, the inner bully to grab. I am convinced that anyone who has successfully suicided was running from their own inner bully. That's why when we reach out and talk to somebody, that those suicidal tendencies, that that inclination, that, that impulse goes away because when you're talking to somebody else, you're not listening to your own inner bully. So please, please work on letting go of being your own asshole. And so many people go to therapy for years and years and years, and they don't tackle that inner asshole. And that's really what's going to make life be better. Life, life has never gotten easier for me in terms of things coming at me. I made peace a few years ago. I was still holding on to, if I can just get to a point in my life where it's smoother, And there's so much freedom in accepting, oh, life is organized chaos. It's going to keep sending me waves. It's not going to get smoother from this external place. It's going to get smoother when I'm smoother internally. It's going to get smoother when I'm kind to myself, when I go, hey, good job, you know, or take a break from the closet. You can come right back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm glad you said that about the suicide rate and how prevalent it is and how scary it is because it really does emphasize how important this work is. Um, and I know that when I finally stopped drinking, it was, it was mostly because I was very worried about my mental health. I was just like, this is going nowhere good. I feel doomed. And, you know, just pulling yourself out of that and getting clarity and going to therapy and, and all the stuff really, really helps. But your inner asshole gets really, really loud when you keep telling yourself you're going to stop drinking and then you don't. And then you wake up with a hangover again. And, you know, I mean, when I was working, I was never, you know, actually suicidal ideation. But the most common phrase that would come to my mind when something new would come up when I was drinking was, I want to shoot myself. It was like reflective and reflexive and um, automatic. And, you know, since I've stopped drinking and done a bunch of work, I never think I want to shoot myself. I think this fucking sucks. I don't Mm -hmm. like this, you know, like whatever it is. But my automatic thought pattern is never I want to shoot myself. And that's, 
you know, that's why this work is so important. Yeah, good for you. What I would say is I love one thing you said in the middle that I wanted to mention was you said I shouldn't have to get to a graduate degree to need to be able to learn some of this stuff, some of these concepts. And in listening to one of your previous podcast interviews, you also said that um, one of the reasons you started this podcast was because you kept saying the same things to clients, teaching them the same lessons, that so many people needed to learn this who don't have access to therapy or or um, that kind of thing or graduate school. So I would love you just to talk a little bit about what you do in your podcast, in your work, because I think it's going to help so many people. I think what I do is, other than the education that I have in psychology and counseling, um, my addiction background, I'm a very authentic person. And I think we've, I think podcasting is bringing it back, but I think for a long time we've sort of lost the art form of how humans really learn. And since the beginning of our humanity, we have learned by passing down stories, like sitting around the fire and sharing with each other. And I, I think the, the, I'm certainly not anti-science, but when it comes to the human condition and our emotions and relating to each other, I don't know how they're really going to study some of that stuff and make it scientific. And we're living through this time of, if it's not scientifically proven in a study, well, then fuck it. And so what I do on my show is I try to use my own story as a teacher. And when I'm sharing my story, the truth of it is, it's not just my story. I mean, that's a way with me as, as a therapist doing a show. I don't have to say, oh, I've had clients that this and that and this client story. Because I've heard so many stories. I've worked with thousands of people. We all have the same story, even when our stories are completely different. And learning to hold ourselves in integrity and self-respect is so important and foundational that I try to show with the sort of horrendic, horrendous parts of my history that you really can get to a place of happiness. I, I think and I have enough confidence now and, and I've worked through imposter syndrome enough to say this. I wouldn't have been able to say this a few years ago. But I think when people meet me or they hear me, I am genuinely happy. I am genuinely settled. Uh, people will tell me things like, I can really feel the healing on you. Like you're not just saying this shit. And so for a lot of people, I think our pain isolates us and we think we're the only ones going through it. And so it's been important to me to use my story to say, you're not alone. You're not. And if, and if I figured this shit out, you can figure this out. And none of it is rocket science. I never felt like I fit into academia. It was too heady for me. I didn't think I got it right. A lot of the time I would look at my colleagues and think, you know, they can pull things out of the air. Like they can go, Oh, this theorist, you know, from, psychiatry and this, and they taught this theory and this dates and this and that. I can't do that. I can't do that. My mind doesn't work that way. So I had to get to a place in my own career. I've been doing this since 2005 or six, that I had to accept who I was, not just as me, the, the personal person, Nikki, but as the professional that I am and really let go of all the shoulds of how I should do it, what I think a therapist typically 
talks like, you know, like I think I have a lot of like Frasier in my head from growing up with like a Frasier, you know, just, just not being that way. And so I, I think for a lot of people, I, I think what I'm doing is bringing like more of a, a humanity to what therapy is. I also, for, for severe trauma survivors and for addiction too, very often, um, I think the wall that is so typical between therapist and client, the, the truth of it is that a degree is not enough to trust somebody. And I, I, that's a real problem I have with my profession. And I don't thank a lot of friends for saying it professionally. But the, a lot of those boundaries were put up because it was old doctors that didn't want to be personable with their patients. And what a convenient thing to share none of yourself. And there, there's some philosophy that I just think is crap about why that is. Now, there's some reason to have some boundaries for sure. And I walked those very clinical boundaries for a long time with my clients. And then I, I started breaking them and breaking them and breaking them and seeing the success of that. What we're yearning for and why I think the suicide rate is so high is because we are yearning for real human beings to learn from. Really. And that's why so much of this is a reparenting. I have so many spiritual mothers in my heart and in my psychological tool bag. When I need to, I picture Maya Angelou standing behind me with her, her hand on my shoulder. Because we need that kind of support. We do in our private moments and in big moments of our life. So I, I hope that what I offer in this show is the, the idea that you can take me with you too in that way. And if you need to tap me in, you can go, Nikki's behind me and I invite you to use me in such a way. Um, I also hope that I'm, that I'm sharing what it is to push against the growth edge. I am truly an introvert. I'm very, very introverted. Um, it is very, very awkward for me if I meet somebody in real life and they're like, oh, I've listened to your show before they've met me. So it's, it's pushing at my growth edge. And I think that's important for highly sensitive people to see modeled that sensitivity is not an excuse to be fragile. You're not fragile. Um, I resist. I'll even use the H word. I, I hate all victim mentality because it will not help you at all. It will broaden your pain. You might get a lot of attention for it for a little while, but it will broaden your pain. And so I, I come from a place of absolute anti-victim mentality in all things. Your power is in taking empowerment for your life and making your choices. And I hope that I, that I do a good job showing that to inspire other people to, to take the reins of their life. You get this one precious life. And so take those reins and, and do it. And if you do, you can heal. And, and I think by people feeling that I really am healed and will never be perfectly healed, but feeling that I, I think that's more powerful than swirling around our problems constantly, constantly, constantly. We have to be more solution focused and we have to find the people that inspire us to be our best self. One of, one of my um, recent new clients said to me when I said, okay, why did you want to do this with me? She said, because I listened to your show and so much of what you said pissed me off. And I thought this lady can really help me. And so I'm, I'm very, I'm very confrontive and I am no bullshit because I want you to get to real true peace. And, you know, we talk about self-love more and more, I'm thinking it's more self-respect. And when we're in yeah, self-respect, you can't help but be in self-love. Yeah. 
Well, I think that you do do a great job of rejecting that victim mentality and being empowered and showing other people that that is a way to contentment and happiness. And, you know, you only get this one life. So um, that is definitely coming through with everything I've listened to you and also meeting you. Thank you, Mom. Thank you. How can people find you and follow up? You can find me at emotionalbadass.com. I did feel a little scattered today. I hope I don't leave too many questions. But if you have questions for me, you can you can join my Patreon. I have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash emotional badass. Um, at, at the $10 a month level, I do a monthly live stream where people can ask questions. We have topics. The very last topic was triggers. Um, I think we did a topic recently on sex. Um, and anything goes. But part of part of what I offer there and, and on the show too is just you can really ask me anything. Uh, I've done enough work to be really comfortable, even though I'm an introvert. And and if there's a therapeutic way for me to answer a question about my life, I will answer it. Um, as a sexual abuse survivor from my childhood, I encourage people, if you have question, all the questions you're not supposed to ask a therapist, you can ask me, basically. Anything. I've, I've encouraged clients to even ask me about bodily things like post-sexual abuse. So I just try to use my story to be a teacher and to help people become their own authority figure. And I think that's part of what makes people feel safe with me is that uh, I don't need to be worshipped. I want you to to give your energy to you and to, to learn what it is to really love and honor yourself. And I even encourage people to disagree with me. You know, like that's kind of needed in this country is being able to learn from people that we're different from too. So yeah, I, I just, I, I, I hope that, that I gave some kind of service to your listeners today and help them be able to just see themselves and hold themselves just with more, more respect, more groundedness. And that's what we get to do as adults. You know, we didn't have grown up wise women or wise men, us when we were little, you know, but we have that now. And that's why we're never going to be abandoned again. You know, grown up you is going to be with you till the very, very end. And so what a beautiful thing to cultivate that wise woman being able to take care of you and hold you. That That's my passion, basically. I love that. I think that's a perfect way to leave this. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I know you helped people and you helped me as well. Thank you so much, Casey. Very much. Light and love. Oh, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of 
how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.